If you are here for the first time today, you need to know that we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled, What is the Church? And the the series is significantly based upon Paul's letter, first letter, to the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church, Corinthian believers. And over the last few weeks, we've covered a number of topics pertaining to what it means to be the church. And of primary importance is the fact that the church is made up of the people of God, believers who have been born again of the Spirit of God. And it's made up of all such believers from the days when Jesus said to his disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and then commissioned them to preach the gospel throughout the world, all the way down through the centuries to include this present day, the universal church. And the early church is chronicled in the book of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, which could, of course, have been called the Chronicles of the Early Church of Jesus Christ. The church then is defined as an aggregate of individuals who've been called by Jesus, who've accepted by faith his redemptive work of salvation on the cross, and have been born again of the Spirit to be God's people. Peter says it like this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I was brought up in the days when the King James Version was still used quite a bit, and I well remember with amusement a particular phrase in the King James rendition of this verse. Here's how it goes. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now this echoed the times in the Old Testament when Yahweh, or the Lord, referred to his people in like manner, a distinctive people in nature because they belong to God. Deuteronomy 14 says this, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, of course, as a young person, when I heard the word peculiar, it conjured up all the normal meanings of that word and brought a smile to my face. And yet, when you think about it, even by that meaning, we are a peculiar people, are we not? There are at least two distinctives that render us peculiar. Firstly, we celebrate something called the Lord's Supper, And secondly, we take new believers, plunge them under water, and call that baptism. Peculiar practices in both senses of the word, distinctive on the one hand, and downright strange on the other. Last week, Todd turned to a mini-series within the What is the Church series, a mini-series to cover these two topics, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And last week, he preached on the meaning of the Lord's Supper, And today we will specifically look at how we as believers are to participate in the Lord's Supper. How should we do that? What should we think about? How do we participate appropriately? And the topic of baptism will follow later. First of all, just a quick summary for those of you who were not here last week as to what Todd told us about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. He first of all told us that in the Roman Catholic Church, the Lord's Supper is regarded as a sacrament and is believed to be a means of conveying grace when the rite is duly performed by an authorized agent, such as a priest, regardless of whether or not any faith was present within the individual receiving the sacrament. Now, as Protestants, we reject this notion, he said, we call it an ordinance. 
a commanded practice, though some Protestants, Anglicans and Lutherans in particular, continue to use the word sacrament while rejecting the Roman Catholic understanding of the term. Specifically, as evangelicals, we take the position that the bread and wine are strictly symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus. We reject transubstantiation or consubstantiation in reference to Christ's presence somehow being within the elements of the bread and the wine themselves. Second thing he told us was that the term for this celebration includes the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, uh, or communion, which comes directly from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. The third thing we learned was that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus during the Last Supper, the final celebration of, a, of the Passover meal. And there's great meaning in, it, in its attachment to the Passover meal, and whole sermons have been given on that very uh, topic. But the point is that Jesus himself and his bloodshed in particular became the fulfillment of the cup of redemption, which is the third of the four cups during the traditional Passover meal. The fourth thing we learned was that uh, the Lord's Supper was often incorporated into an agape feast or a love feast in the early days of the church. And it was because of this practice that much of what we will read today was written by Paul. And finally, he told us that there are many, many layers of meaning. He came up with seven, but only had time for three. First of all, it's all about memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. Secondly, it's all about thanksgiving. Jesus gave thanks for bread and wine. It wasn't simply thanks for a meal. It was thanks for all that would be affected by his death for those who believed. And thirdly, the Lord's Supper is about spiritual communion. Communion between Christ and the church and communion between fellow believers. So, as I stated earlier, today we'll share some thoughts on how we're to receive or participate in communion. I'm going to ask David Risgan to come up and read the verses designated for today. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are dis disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thank you, David. So I grew up in the church, as they say. I probably have attended church 50 to 52 weeks of the years from infancy. And I started taking communion after I was baptized at the age of 14. And I participated in the Lord's Supper probably every month since then, plus quite a number of times at retreats and uh, in small groups environments. So roughly speaking, I calculated that thus far, I have participated in the Lord's Supper 600 times in my lifetime. And some of you were brought up in traditions of celebrating the Lord's Supper every single week. If that were applied to me, I would be counting about 2,500 Lord's Suppers by now. That's the repetition of a lot of liturgy, isn't it? Over the years, there have been many occasions when those in leadership, including myself, have therefore incorporated a fresher approach or a fresh perspective in order to cause the, the participation in the celebration to be more than mere rote. But in so doing, occasionally there have been those who've raised questions of orthopraxy, meaning how the Lord's Supper was being celebrated, and even a question or two about orthodoxy, meaning what we believe about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So before we go into some practical uh, approaches to experiencing the Lord's Supper, I want to tra tackle a few of the issues that have occasionally raised concern among believers about how the Lord's Supper should be celebrated. I'm going to address three issues first. What elements should be best chosen to represent bread and wine? Secondly, how should the Lord's Supper be administered and thirdly, what does it mean to profane the Lord's Supper? So first, let's address the question of the choice of elements. Bread and wine. Now here are some of the questions. Unleavened bread or bread with yeast? Crackers. One loaf in which all participate. Pizza bread broken by the participants at the time of receiving it. Or pizza bread which has already been cut up like we do here. Gluten-free bread. Communion wafers. The list could go on. And then as to wine, regular alcoholic wine, fortified alcoholic wine, non-alcoholic wine, grape juice, some other juice, juice. Again, the choices seem to be uh, rather long. I was brought up in the UK Baptist Church, not the Southern Baptist Church, not the American Baptist Church, the UK Baptist Church. And this is how we did the Lord's Supper. The bread was a single loaf broken by the pastor, distributed into enough pieces so that each plate had a representative part of the, body, of the loaf on it. But then on each plate, 
there were lots of neat square pieces of bread purchased from some religious supply house so that each participant had exactly the same size of somewhat stale bread. The wine, which was strictly non-alcoholic, communion wine, was pre-poured into tiny little individual glasses or cups. And the pastor gave each deacon a plate of bread and a tray of cups, and they were passed down the rows, and each recipient would take the bread and a single cup and hold on to them until all had been served. And after thanks had been given first for the bread, we ate the bread together as an expression of our unity. And then after thanks for the wine, we likewise raised these tiny cups to our lips and drank together as an expression of our unity. Imagine my surprise when on vacation, my dad took us to an Anglican church. At the Eucharist, each of us went up to the front of the church where the vicar placed a wafer into my hand to be eaten immediately and that looked and tasted like paper and which absorbed all the saliva I had in my mouth instantly such that I badly needed the wine that was to follow. Fortunately, it came fairly quickly. It came in a beautiful single cup, actually a goblet of some standing, and the rim of which was wiped with a cloth before each recipient took it and drank from it. When my turn came, I found myself taking a gulp of rather fortified alcoholic red wine that brought tears to my eyes and warmed my chest as it went down. A little different from Acton Baptist Church, I thought to myself. Many years later, when I came to the U.S., I was equally surprised that instead of any kind of wine being served, grape juice was the wine of choice. I think I preferred the fortified wine. <laughs> Is there any biblical underpinning for which exact form of elements must be used to represent bread and wine? As evangelicals, we believe the answer is no. Yet there are personal preferences to be sure. You see, from a personal point of view, I would prefer that we all partake of a single loaf or piece of bread, that in some way um, we would all uh, participate in a single cup of wine. I don't know how we would do that easily in, today, in, in this day and age. To me, that seems more representative of what is more likely to have happened at the Last Supper, the supper on, uh, uh, before which uh, Jesus died. A single loaf, a single cup, are symbols of unity or oneness in the body of Christ. That's my personal preference. But having said that, let me make something very clear. I stand firmly within the view that the bread and the wine are symbols first, primarily, and of greatest importance, of Jesus' body and blood, not our unity. Paul writes quite a bit about the Lord's Supper, but he does not specify exactly about the physical elements themselves. So we have the liberty to choose the elements that represent bread and wine to us within reason. Simplicity seems appropriate, doesn't it? Some reasonable representation of simple bread and simple wine seems to be appropriate. I, for one, would not be a fan of granola bars and Coke. Though, if they were the only elements available in a particular setting, like a multiple-day trip into the outback or whatever, I can imagine that with proper attribution, even these could be used. 
So then let's not permit the choice of the actual elements to get in the way of their meaning, nor to somehow compromise the experience of participating in the Lord's Supper. Secondly, let's turn to the question, how should the Lord's Supper be administered? And a primary importance for us as evangelicals is that we reject the notion that only priests or clergy may administer or preside over the Lord's Supper. In principle, any believer could do this, though I think it would be better if that believer had a solid understanding of its meaning. As evangelicals, of course, we reject the notion of needing any priest to act as an intermediary other than Jesus. Yet there are certainly many in the Protestant tradition that hold to the view that only clergy, or those set aside as lay leadership and appropriately trained, can administer communion. We are not from that tradition. We don't believe that there's any particular biblical support for that view. Though it does have the effect of ensuring that due regard is given to the administration of the Lord's Supper. It's not entered into lightly. At Hope Christian Church, we now generally adopt the practice that we will do later today, that each participant believer serves themselves following the giving of an appropriate reminder of the, meanings of the uh, meaning of the Lord's Supper. Yet, there have been a few times when we have suggested that people come forward to a table and somebody offers the bread and says, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and offers the wine, this is... Um, this is the cup of the wine of the new covenant shed for you. And, and we've invited people to respond with, and I shall live for him. I remember doing this quite a few years ago. And immediately afterwards, as elders, we were met with a strident negative response from someone of some standing within the church. Seemingly, in his mind, we had crossed the line towards, at best, errant orthopraxy, and at worst, heresy or errant orthodoxy. To his mind, you see, we'd vested a few special individuals to serve the many in a priestly role. And these people somehow to him were deemed to be functioning effectively as priests and acting in some way as intermediary between God and the congregant. It was a sad and difficult week because apparently the only way in his mind for peace to be restored was for the teaching pastor to, to, to declare the following week that the chosen protocol was not what it appeared to be, and to explain our firm commitment to the priesthood of all believers. We could have done that, but we did not. Nonetheless, it put a damper on doing something similar with any regularity since then, and it ensured that when we do something like that, we're very specific about what it does not mean about vesting individuals with priestly roles to serve the many. The point is that there are times when we may choose to invite a variance to the manner in which we even here actually administer the Lord's Supper because Scripture does not prescribe with definition how we, to, how we are to administer beyond the basic framework. We have great freedom, you see. Thirdly, let's address the question, what does it mean to profane the Lord's Supper? The very notion of profaning the Lord's Supper does raise, should raise, some fear within us. Where does this fear come from? Well, surely it comes from the very scripture that David read for us this morning. Listen again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eat, um, without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But, we've, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, those are intense words. So let's take a closer look. First of all, let's make it very clear that the issue Paul is talking about is not that a person is unworthy to take the Lord's Supper, but that a person can take it in an unworthy manner. So believers should not take, uh, sorry, non-believers should not take communion should not participate in the Lord's Supper. It is something for believers. But Paul is writing to believers and saying you can take it in an unworthy manner. And be declared a person who's guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And then he adds that some are weak and ill and have died as a consequence. See, this is not supper. This is the Lord's Supper. This is not for the stomach. This is for the soul. This is not about eating. This is about the sacred understanding of and participating in the body and blood of Christ. Look again at verse 23. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, verse 29 helps us. Paul writes, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. But what does that mean? Well, there are two likely explanations for what it means to discern the body. First, and most importantly, in respect to the body of Christ itself or himself. And secondly, in terms of the symbolic use of the word body of Christ, referring to the body of believers that make up the church. So let's take a look at first things first the body of Christ itself or himself. And the basis of what Paul is talking about here is given in verse 31, which says this, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. We need to have a right understanding of who we are and in particular be able to judge ourselves in respect to sin in our lives. Every one of us who comes to participate in the Lord's Supper needs to acknowledge to themselves and to the Lord that they are sinners. We need to properly remind ourselves that we've never been able to approach the Lord without first understanding that we are sinners and that Jesus' death, the very matter that we are remembering in the Lord's Supper, was a death for our sin and is the only means of access to God. His death atoned for our sin. The issue for concern is not that we come as sinners for we surely do that by definition, but that we come in a posture of refusing to properly countenance that we come as sinners, and in particular, to come refusing to acknowledge specific sins within our lives that need forgiveness from Jesus and about which the Holy Spirit may very well be trying to convict us. So specifically, it means that prior to taking the Lord's Supper, we have to examine ourselves under the auspices of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as believers and convicts us of our sin. That's the warning. Failure to come with proper judgment of ourselves risks our profaning the Lord's Supper. 
it risks that we will be charged as guilty all over again concerning the body and blood of the Lord, the death of Jesus for our sin. The second possibility for profanity is sinning against the body of Christ, metaphorically, of course, as the church, known as the church. This passage in Corinthians includes a very sharp rebuke, sharp rebuke from, from Paul regarding the sins against one another within the body of Christ. At these so-called agape meals, some stuffed themselves full of food and got drunk with wine, while others went without anything to eat or drink. So do not come lightly to the communion table if you are in a place of broken fellowship with someone in the body of Christ, the church. Don't come with sin harbored in your heart against someone in the fellowship, in this fellowship. Resolve those things as far as it depends upon you so that you can come without guilt of any kind and thereby not profane the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verse 31, if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. If we properly recognize our sins against the Lord and those within the community, we will not be judged. We're free to come and partake at the Lord's Supper. But what happens if we do not approach the Lord's Supper, having judged ourselves properly? What happens if we fail to judge ourselves properly? Well, Paul says that by so doing, we will be judged by God. Now, that's a scary thought. But it is important to properly understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying about the manner in which we will be judged by God or we'll get confused. Verse 32 says it like this. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, if we don't judge ourselves rightly, see ourselves as sinners rightly, Paul says that God will judge us. But he quickly goes on to explain that this is discipline, not condemnation. This means that God will discipline us in love. Chastening or disciplining is not judgment in the sense we often understand the term to be, as a sentence of condemnation against us, leading to rejection of us, by Jesus. But rather, it's the kind of judging that the Lord administers, uh, which is intended to cause us to realize our sin, confess our sin, and repent. He doesn't throw us out of his family. He doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. He does not condemn us along with the rest of the world. Now, Paul is saying that God's intention is to reveal to us our sin, to have us confess our sin, so that we can gain forgiveness. Then we can participate in the Lord's Supper in a worthy and appropriate manner. That being said, I take this scripture literally. Do you? There are consequences for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. According to this scripture, there may well be people in our community present here today who are up to their eyebrows in known besetting sin who refuse to call it sin. And you just might be suffering weakness or worse as a result. So let's be careful not to bypass these verses too readily and to profane the Lord's Supper. 
Now, there is perhaps a third issue that arises from time to time with respect to potentially disrespecting or profaning the Lord's Supper. In most of our traditions, we participate in complete silence or in sobriety or solemnity, and that is doubtless appropriate in terms of not entering into it lightly or casually. In some traditions, there's complete silence. In others, an organ plays in the background. In yet others, a song, a song is sung over the congregation, or the congregation can choose to join in the singing of that song, but that music or the song is almost always highly reflective and contemplative, intended to help us to remember the death of Jesus in terms of his suffering. And truly, that has become our tradition here at Hope Christian Church. But I well remember the day when, as a worship leader at the time, I chose an upbeat, victorious song as part of the celebration of communion. An upbeat song about the power and victory affected by the blood of Jesus. After the service, I was taken aside by an elder statesman, though not an elder, and royally reamed out about how I had profaned the Lord's Supper. It left me speechless, and the rebuke stung and has continued to sting to this day. So I checked into whether I was party to causing the church to profane the Lord's Supper. I conferred with the prior teaching pastor, because that's when it happened, and I checked this again with our current teaching, teaching pastor when he came. I have consulted other respected theologians about this as well. And my study this week has also touched on the subject. It stung to be charged with profaning the Lord's Supper. And I do not believe that I was profaning the Lord's Supper by singing an upbeat song of celebration. While generally speaking, it's more useful for us to dwell on or reflectively contemplate the cost or the price paid by Jesus to affect our salvation. It is not profanity to focus on the victory and reward of his death in terms of giving us salvation, giving us eternal life. After all, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving, and we frequently use the word celebrating the Lord's Supper or celebrating communion. What is celebration without some jubilance? Truly, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is cause for celebration. And provided the celebration is entered into appropriately, there's nothing profane about high praise and rejoicing being part of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, because of that incident and others like it, I sent my sermon script to Todd this week just to review for heresy, to make sure it was fitting as part two of his mini-series. I don't, I don't think I've ever done that before, but today I did. So if you think Ian's way out off the reservation, Todd's there with him. Now, in his response, he attached an extract from a book that he was reading called Sojourners and Strangers by Dr. Greg Allison. It's a book all about evangelical ecclesiology. That's what teaching pastors read on vacation books on evangelical ecclesiology. Anyway, I found the extract so compelling, I just have to read it. Apparently, Dr. Allison was talking about the eschatological implications of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And eschatology is all about end times, the return of Jesus. And this is what Dr. Allison writes. 
This eschatological depth of the Lord's Supper needs to find expression in the church's observance. Practically speaking, this can be accomplished with particular regard to the tenor or atmosphere in which the ordinance is administered. The Lord's Supper should be a celebration. It is not a funeral, a time to feel sorry for Jesus who died. Neither is it a mere remembrance of Jesus and his death. Furthermore, it is not a time primarily for morbid introspection, leading to feelings of remorse over personal sins. Neither is it a celebration of its own good fellowship. Rather, the Lord's Supper is a proleptic celebration of victory because Jesus, through his sacrificial death that has defeated sin and death, will return to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. While the atmosphere in which the church administers the Lord's Supper must be decorous and respectful, it should also express a vibrant celebration of both past and future realities wrought by Jesus Christ. As a participation in Christ and all of the salvific benefits associated with his sacrificial death, the Lord's Supper is to be a celebration focused on Christ in anticipation of his victorious return in glory. I hope you followed that. I wouldn't want to read the rest of that book. It's got way too difficult terminology in it, but it was good for Todd and it was good for me this morning. So, so much for the more controversial issues of orthopraxy. We now begin to turn to actually celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning together. How do we do this well? How do we do this well? How do we not have this just be a meaningless ritual that we do once a month? More than a few people have commented on the fact that didn't we just do this last week and we're doing it again this week? I want to share. I think there are two things that we have to do. We have to pay attention to the meaning of the Lord's Supper according to the Scriptures and we have to heed the warnings contained within the Scriptures pertaining to participating in the Lord's Supper. After all these years as a member of the Lord's Church, in my preparation this week, I came across one commentator who brought it all together around uh, this approach, the postures of the heart that would be helpful for us as believers. And I, I, His name is Warren Wibser. I find a very useful commentary. It's called the Bible Exposition Commentary. So without any apology, I want to borrow from him four postures of the heart as we come and a fifth that I will add to it. So here we go. First of all, we should look back. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're to remember that he died, how he died, and why he died. We do so in remembrance. The second thing that we need to do is to look ahead or look forward. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes again. See, Jesus said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine 
until after he returns to claim us, his bride, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's an astonishing truth to me. One day Jesus will come again, and that is the great hope of being a believer. And for 2,000 years, believers have celebrated the Lord's uh, Supper, proclaiming his death in anticipation of his coming. In our generation, we're to continue this as we come to the Lord's table. Look back. Look ahead. Look in is the third one. Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Here it is. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're to judge ourselves and examine our consciences with the help of the Holy Spirit, to identify our sins, to confess them, to receive God's forgiveness before we come. The fourth one is to look around. By this is meant that we're to be aware of the fact that as believers, we're one body. And again and again, Paul talks about when you come together. He uses it in verse 17, in verse 18, in verse 20, and here it is in verse 33. So then, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. We're to look around in the sense that we are one people, not merely a group of individuals. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper in communion, in union with one another. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says it this way. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So we're to look around to recognize that we're one body, to look around in order to make sure, make sure that we're in good fellowship with one another. One of the traditions during the Lord's Supper that I had when I was growing up was this, that the pastor would simply note the people within the church fellowship that could not be present on that particular Sunday. Not by choice, they were present, and they were not present because of frailty or sickness or some career assignment. And towards the end of the Lord's Supper, the pastor would simply name the names of the body, the local body, that were not present in order to somehow establish their presence among us as the Lord's people. So that was Wibbs' list. I want to add my own. Look up, look up. In verse 24, it says that Jesus, when Jesus had given thanks... Now, Jesus was giving thanks to the Father, wasn't he? He's addressing the Father, and we should do likewise. We should give thanks to the Father, not for bread and wine in terms of a meal, but for sending Jesus. And we need to give thanks to Jesus for all that he did on our behalf and for all of who he is to us. Something special is happening in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Something a little bit mystical is happening. This is how Todd said it last week. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is an expression of spiritual participation by faith in that one time for all time sacrifice of Jesus and the cross and in all the blessings and benefits he accomplished through it. 
Webster says it like this. We do not walk around a monument and admire it. We have fellowship with the living Savior as our hearts reach out by faith. And John Piper says it like this. We feast on every spiritual blessing bought by the body and blood of Christ. No unbeliever can do that. Something special does happen in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance that is only for believers, only for the church. It is for, it is for those who are called by God into His church. And the church is a people who celebrate the Lord's Supper in obedience to His instructions and in an appropriate manner. I want us to move into a celebration of the Lord's Supper. If I specifically ask Edwin and the band to come on up, please do so now. I want us to bow our heads or go to a posture of contemplation. And I've asked Hannah if she can just put up a slide which reminds us of looking back, looking ahead, looking in, looking around, and looking up. I specifically ask that the words to the song would not be put up onto the overheads for us to join in singing, but to allow the band and the, and the, um, the lyrics of this song to create spaciousness this morning for us to be able to do those things, and then we'll all partake.